morning. It's good to be back with you all. Uh, we are back in Acts, so if you have a Bible, can you flip to Acts 2? So I am doing a little mini-series alongside Mark once a month. I'm going to be taking us through the book of Acts uh, humorously. So I just got my, I'm a teacher, so I got my second vaccine shot on Friday. And I emailed Mark like a week and a half ago as I started hearing that people who got that second vaccine shot sometimes responded negatively and had chills and those kinds of things. I just emailed him like, hey, Mark, maybe I won't be feeling so good on Sunday. I don't know. And he emailed me back, I've preached with a broken collarbone. Get out there. <laughs> All right. I did. Uh, it, it knocked me down pretty good yesterday, but I am feeling good today. Glad to be with you all. And even if I felt bad, I'd be here. So there you go. Um, the service thus far, uh, the song that we sang together, Is He Worthy? And then Lisa's testimony. One of the things that I think was really cool about both those is they have modeled for us how to preach the gospel to ourselves. Uh, part of the reason that we meet together, we read the scriptures, we do those things is because naturally we're pretty hopeless, cynical. We, we don't have a lot of faith that God is doing good things or that he loves us. And uh, that song, um, what Lisa talked about, is just practicing kind of preaching to ourselves the truths of the gospel. We are children of God. He is for us. He loves us. Uh, so really good stuff. All right. So in Acts... Uh, it was about a month ago that I preached through Acts 1, and I'm sure you all remember it exactly and don't need me to refresh it all. But just in case, uh, we talked a little bit about how Acts is like the founding documents for the church. Um, I'm calling this series the uh, family history, I think so. Uh, and the point is, it's, the, it's like the stories that tell us who we are and where we are going. And what makes Acts so interesting compared to other kind of founding documents, is that they are not based on worldly power. Uh, they seem to be running to a whole different type of story. Um, if you were going to create a founding document for a new religion, you wouldn't write acts where people are martyred frequently and it just looks like a lot of loss and failure. But what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus builds his kingdom on weakness, on suffering, on all these other kind of counterintuitive things. And we saw last time that Jesus ascends and he tells his disciples, hey, listen, get ready because the spirit is coming. And so we are here, we're in Acts 2, and the spirit is coming. We're getting the payoff. So let's read uh, 2, 1 through 21 together. 2 is massive, so I've split it up. But this time we're just going to do 2, 1 through 21. Let's read it together and we'll jump in. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, 
both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, ah, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together that God would be with us as we work through his word. Father, uh, be with us as we learn about your spirit and may your spirit guide us in this. May we hear your word. May we see your truth. Thank you for your goodness to us, and in Jesus' name, amen. So as someone who works at a boarding school, I've had a lot of opportunities to see culture clash. Some hilarious stories, uh, some humbling. Uh, I, I had a, I can't get into too many details, but I had two students from Western Europe who, Eastern Europe, who made some jokes to one another that in an American context were totally inappropriate, and I heard it and immediately called them out, and they were like, Stop, you, every, you think everything's about you. This, makes to, this is what it means for us to make this joke, quit. And I'm like, you're totally right, actually. Um, so you're constantly at a boarding school doing this dance as you navigate all these different cultures. Um, for some cultures, raising your voice is a really powerful, exciting thing. For others, that's really offensive. Uh, and so you're just constantly trying to figure it out. Um, and yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, one of my favorites is I had a fellow teacher who said in his first year he has a class with you know students represented from all over the place and as a joke he says what are you guys communists and about half of them are like yeah actually uh, <laughs> realized he can't make that joke anymore okay uh, one student who uh, graduated recently and my family loved her very much this lovely Chinese student and uh, we asked her or the, the dorm asked her, what would surprise us about you? What's something we all don't know that would surprise us about you? And she said, you know, I'm actually funny in my native language, which is a really interesting thing, because she, she was super nice and very well-spoken, and she was saying, the part of me that doesn't translate is, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really hilarious in English, but I am in my native language. Uh, and that was an interesting thing to hear, and you can imagine that that could happen to us as well. Well, um, this difference in language, it doesn't just have to be literal foreign languages. It can also be between two native speakers of the same language, right? We can have conversations with each other where it feels like we are from totally different planets and we're having totally different conversations. It's called Twitter. Uh, like, are we even looking at the same thing, right? Well, the Bible has an interesting thing to say about this, which we just read together. It tells the story of the Tower of Babel. 
Essentially, the story is like this. Humankind unites, and they're like, we're going to build this massive tower that's going to show how powerful and awesome we are. We are going to build our tower to the heavens. This is how we will become meaningful. Well, God and the writer in Genesis is having some fun with this. They're building their tower, and he says that God comes down. Uh, like God's like, oh, what are, what are you doing down? Oh, interesting, you know, little tower. That's cool. Uh, he comes down and realizes that if people are united in rebellion against God, it will wreak total damage on the earth and communities and all these things. That a united humanity against him uh, is not a threat to him, but it is a threat to shalom. It's a threat to the way he has the world ordered. And so God confuses the speech. He uh, creates these new languages and spreads people all over the globe. And that's the Tower of Babel, which would have been firmly in the head of any uh, New Testament believer. Interestingly, this spread of languages and cultures, which we see as like kind of a curse in Genesis, I find is often a hindrance to people's faith. We have more access than ever to different voices and cultures around the world. And a lot of people can look at the sea, uh, the variety out there and go, well, maybe Christianity can't be the one true way because observe all this massive sea of different options and different ways. A, qu a couple of quick things I would say to that before we really get into it. First, uh, I would just like to point out that this, the fact that there are other religions and that there are other cultures and other voices is not a newly acknowledged reality. Like when we're in Acts, the world is a very religious place. And there are all kinds of you know, gods and goddesses that people are worshiping. Uh, and the believers here did not rest their faith in how many or how few competitive religions there were. They did not see these new religions say, oh, God must not be true, because their faith was rested on the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the second thing, if we're just looking at objective facts, like numbers, right now we have more reason for optimism than anyone in history. If you're just going to base your, your, which you shouldn't, but if you were just going to base your faith in Christ on numbers, in 1910, we had 600 million people who claimed Christianity, and in 2019, 2 billion people claimed Christianity. There is this massive group. The gospel has spread in this incredible way all over the world. Uh, it may be tempting to look at the Western world and see Christian power fading and then go, well, Christianity wasn't what it said it was. But I'm going to say that's a pretty egocentric view, that the church doesn't belong to the West. It's a global thing, the gospel going forth. And so ask ourselves, what is our faith resting on? Is it resting on the position of faith in our culture, or is it resting on Christ and his resurrection, how it's going forth? There's so many stories right now of how the gospel is moving forward in power all over the world. So I don't think that this, uh, this diversity of religious belief is, is the death knell for Christianity. But it is true that as we look out at the world and even at our neighbors, we recognize that we just don't speak the same language. Not just literally, but even symbolically and all of this. And sometimes this can have really devastating effect. It can negatively impact our faith, as I've mentioned. You speak the div a really different language from your neighbor or your spouse. It can destroy marriages and friendships. It can lead us to be suspicious of one another. And ultimately, in America right now, I feel like the response is, people think and speak differently from me, so I must get power to shut them up, right? Uh, 
which is bad news. I must gather enough people who agree with me, and then we can stop other people from speaking. So we have this problem. We all speak different languages. We feel like we can't bridge the gap between each other. But Pentecost comes. It breaks through. It's like the future breaking through. You get this glimpse of this is the new heavens and the new earth. Boom. <laughs> See? Boom. Uh, <laughs> needed some sound effects there. I saw a couple of you falling asleep, so just smack the microphone. All right. So the future breaks into the present. I won't do that again. Um, and when it does, we see that everyone begins to speak this united language, which is the language of the worship of Christ. That there's this one language that starts to bring people together. So I want to look at two things to get today. Uh, one, because of the Spirit, we work for the harvest. And two, because of the Spirit, we speak the true language. So let's jump in. Let's look at Acts 2, 1 through 4. Brief thing, real quick, though, about Pentecost, what's been interesting. Pentecost is tricky. Like, uh, if you put, you know, a lot of Christians from different perspectives in the same room and they looked at Jesus' death and resurrection, people walk away with basically the same conclusions. But if you put a bunch of Christians in the room and say, what does Pentecost mean? Woo, it's crazy. So uh, Mark and I even went back and forth over email before this thing. So my goal today is to give us kind of the basic bedrock, like here's some big things that are coming out of Pentecost, and hopefully we're good with that. So let's look at 2, 1 through 4 again. So the day of Pentecost arrived, and they were all together in one place. Now, what is Pentecost? Great question. Pentecost is a festival to celebrate a wheat harvest, okay? So it is, it's timed up with the agricultural calendar, they're there to celebrate a harvest. And they also connected it with Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, with the law on Mount Sinai. So there are a couple of big connections we can make just by it being on Pentecost. One, some of you may remember Jesus in John 4 has this really interesting story where he's ahead of the disciples and he sees this Samaritan woman sitting by a well and he comes and sits with her. And he begins to speak with her, and he gives her a lot of dignity in that conversation. And ultimately, he invites her into the kingdom of God. And this would have been a shocking thing because Jesus was speaking to someone who is not an Israelite, who is not one of the chosen ones of God. But Jesus goes out of his way for this Samaritan woman, and when the conversation is over, he tells his disciples this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is weeping, receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. So Jesus is saying there's a harvest coming. The Spirit has been preparing the ground. There are people who are ready and long to be accepted into the kingdom of God. And so Pentecost being a, a thing that celebrates a harvest, it's an echo that there's a, a, a harvest of people that's going on. This is something that can be easy to forget, but there are people who like deeply want and need the gospel, right? It's not always uh, combative. There are actually, the, the harvest is ripe. There are people who are just like waiting. There's, how many of you have testimonies where it felt like there was this something that just clicked in place 
when you heard that one message or that one person spoke to you. That's true, right? The, the harvest, that's still true for us. The harvest is ready. So firstly, it's, it's the harvest. That's, that's why Pentecost. The second thing is it's celebrated when Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai. So how does that connect? Well, primarily the law in the Old Testament is about this. It's how can God dwell with really messed up people? How can God dwell with really messed up people? We know ourselves. We know our neighbors. We're messed up people. Fundamental question in the Bible is God makes us. He loves us. He wants to be with us. The problem is he is holy and we are really sinful. We're really messed up. And how do those two coexist? Well, in the Old Testament, the answer is that God's like, well, we're going to have to mediate my presence. I need the temple. I need the sacrificial system. There's going to be a way you can approach me, but it's going to be mediated through all these things. I will dwell in the temple with you, but it's got to be a perfect temple, and there must be a sacrificial system. This is why the temple is so important. It's the place for God's presence. But what happens when Jesus dies is the curtain is torn in the temple. We now have access directly to the Father. Now God will dwell with his people, like every one of us. Jesus has paved the way, and now we all have access to the throne room of God. So why, why Pentecost? Pentecost because there's a harvest, and secondly, because there's kind of a new way that God is mediating. All right, We don't have to go to a temple. We are the temple. The Spirit dwells within us. This is one of those, like, it should make us kind of shaky a little bit. If we claim to be sons and daughters of God, the Spirit dwells in us. Do you know what the Old Testament believers had to do to approach the temple, like deep into the temple? The preparations they made because it was such a holy space, and only a few people could go in there. And you have stories about people going unworthily and dying because they had not done what was required. And what the, the gospel tells us is that now you and me are the temple. The spirit dwells in us. That's big. We could probably just say amen and walk away and think about that for a while. That's a really big thing. Well, so Pentecost is, is all of this. And the disciples are sitting they're waiting, and we have this. And suddenly there came from heaven, this is verse 2, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house when they were sitting. And you get the feeling the author doesn't know exactly how to describe it, so he's using this symbolic language. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We get a wind which is symbolic of the Spirit throughout the whole Bible. We get a fire, which is purifying, right? You had to be purified before you entered the temple. The Spirit purifies us so that now we can dwell with God. So what do we do all, with all this ourselves? Uh, I'm sure many of you have seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Great movie. Uh, Indiana Jones, of course, is the most action-packed archaeologist ever. I imagine a lot of people signed up for archaeology and were really disappointed to discover what it was actually like. Uh, anyway, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade is the last good Indiana Jones movie. Sorry, number four. Um, and you have this scene where Indiana Jones is going, doing what he does, going deep into this temple to find this secret treasure. And he has come up to this, uh, this chasm. There's like a 30-foot chasm. 
and he's in this hole in the wall and he sees the entrance on the other side, but there's nothing there. There's like a pit, fall forever. And he, uh, he has done a lot of research, so he pulls out his little notebook to see how do I solve this issue, and the trial is called the path of God. And at first, when he gets there, he says, impossible, nobody can jump this. And it's Harrison Ford, so it's really good. But he, uh, brief aside, when I first started dating my wife, um, she actually, her and her roommate had a poster full of various Harrison Ford cutouts. So he was my competition, apparently. Um, I'm glad they never met. All right. He gets to the path of God and he says, impossible, nobody can jump this. And then he recognizes, he's like, you know what? I think this is a leap of faith. And so he just steps out into the chasm and sure enough, his foot hits on solid ground and the camera, you know, shifts and it reveals that it was an optical illusion, that there was actually this path running between both sides. I think that sometimes we feel like the task we've been entrusted with, which is to invite people into the kingdom of God, is impossible. It's this massive chasm. And we get to the edge and we go, impossible. I believe, I think, I think the other thing is Christians, we deep down know that if we say what we believe, it sounds kind of crazy, you know? Like, what do you believe? Well, there was this guy who died and he came back from the dead and he's also God. If you say that in certain contexts, that sounds kind of weird, right? Um, and so we can come up to this moment of inviting people and say there's this chasm that can't be. It's impossible. And you're right. It is impossible for us, but not for the Spirit. Uh, so in our, if we're saying, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, smart enough, I can't answer all the questions, I'm not fluent enough in the gospel stuff, I haven't studied the Bible enough, I haven't this or that, I'm not spiritual enough, yada, yada. It's like, true. And that will always be true. So the answer is the spirit is what we depend on. We do not depend on ourselves. So if we find ourselves saying, I'm a failure, I can't do this, all this, I think the correct answer is, yep. And the spirit's great. And the spirit loves us and we depend on the spirit. We don't look to ourselves. We look to the spirit. So, it can be tempting to feel defensive about the gospel. Notice what these disciples are doing. These are the disciples, by the way, who like all abandoned Jesus, right? Jesus was going to die and they all just run away. And Peter's so ashamed of it that a child confronts him. He's like, didn't you hang out with Jesus? And he's like, what are you talking about? Just like freaks out on her. These are the same disciples who are very cowardly. And they get in this room and they're praying and suddenly the spirit comes and the game changes. We have that same spirit. We are all cowards and failures and losers in all sorts of various ways, it's true. Uh, the answer is not, we don't need more self-esteem. We don't need all this. We need dependence on the spirit. We need dependence on God who looks at us through the lens of Christ, sees the mess that you are, sees the mess that I am, and says, that's my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased, right? We need that spirit. So this spirit comes, it empowers the disciples. Uh, and because of it, we can work for the harvest. That same spirit comes for us, we can work for the harvest. Well, the second thing is, because of Pentecost, we begin to speak the true language. So look with me at 4 through 13. Let's read that again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I want you to notice something. This is pretty cool. This is like God's calling card. I say this a lot. You would think that God would just be like, I'm going to erase Babel, and we're all going to go back to one language. But that's not how God rolls. God is very much about redeeming what has happened. So the Israelites show up in the Old Testament and they say, hey God, I, we really want a king like other nations, and it's a bad thing for them to request it. So what does God do? He not only gives them a king, he builds kingship into the whole salvation plan. He takes their bad request and makes it good. Humanity kills Jesus, and it's the biggest, most redemptive thing that's ever happened. He doesn't erase. He folds those things into redemption. I've said it before up here, but it's why I don't think that our sufferings will just be erased on new earth. I think we'll look back on them and rejoice in the same way the disciples felt the hole in Jesus' hand, and instead of weeping, they rejoiced. It was redeemed. The same thing happens here. You would think, well, now they're all just going to start speaking one language. No. God folds the diversity of language into his plan. Revelation 7 says that there's going to be this great, we, we sang it up here, there's going to be every nation, every tribe, all peoples, and all languages. All those languages are beautiful and are going to enter into the kingdom of God together. So how can they, how can they connect with each other? Because what they are speaking, what they are really doing is they're speaking the content that is true. They're speaking the worship of Christ. This is the language that they're starting to speak. And you'll notice that the Great Commission is being fulfilled. Jesus says, you know, it should go out to all tribes, all people, and they're all there. The whole world is present, and they're all hearing the gospel, and it's going forth. It's starting to happen because of the Spirit. We see it happening. So the kingdom of God is going out to the ends of the earth. It's coming for you and me. And if we're not Israelites, our story begins right here. This is the beginning of our story. Like, this didn't have to happen. It doesn't feel inevitable, I think, if you read the Old Testament, that God opens up his blessings for us too. It's crazy that we're sitting in Long Island talking about this. And we're doing that because of this passage where God goes, I'm opening up. The Spirit is going to drive this mission to the ends of the earth. And someplace, someone in you, maybe you are the first person, but if you can trace believers back generations, there was some place where Pentecost, you can trace out your beginning of belief from Pentecost to your first ancestor who believed in Christ, right? This is the beginning of that story. Uh, and this, this union into this same language, this language, the worshipful language of Christ, is intoxicating if you've ever experienced it in community. Uh, sometimes we can feel union with the same language in like an artificial way, like sports and uh, concerts. They can be really awesome because there's this one moment. Yeah, remember a time when we could go to sporting events. Um, Weirdly, my one thing that I'm like, I just really want to take my sons to a 
SUNY basketball game and overpay for hot dogs and just watch a sporting event. I don't know why that's the thing, but that's the thing I want. But part of what's so great about sports and those things, right, is you, you kind of put everything aside and you just speak in the same language, you know? We pull for those people or we sing that song. That song is great. Let's sing it together. Woo! You know, and you have this kind of union experience. Uh, I didn't get to go to like a massive concert until I was in college and I went to a U2 concert. And I remember being a little unnerved about how worship-like it was, you know? <laughs> like, this feels a lot like the same feeling I have at church. Hmm. Uh, and it kind of confused me. <laughs> well, I think that those, those places are good. That's good. I love sports. I love music. I love concerts. But those things are pointing towards a deeper, a deeper union, a deeper truth, right? This kind of true united fellowship over the fact that we are united in Christ and we speak the language of his worship and we both share the spirit and that spirit is pushing us towards God. Some of you have probably heard of the famous story in World War I, uh, 1914, the first Christmas in World War I. And everyone thought that World War I would be over by Christmas. And so the soldiers uh, on the German and the French side, they're in the trenches and Christmas has come, and they're, of course, very depressed to be there. Well, at some point, and this happened at various points along the line, uh, one side would, like, hoist up a Christmas tree, or they would start singing hymns and carols. And at various points along the line, the singing, kind of where they're used to yelling taunts and, you know, hateful things towards one another, the singing was kind of joined in by both sides. And the story is that at one point in the line, um, some German soldiers said, hey, tomorrow, which is Christmas, uh, we don't shoot, you don't shoot. And they reached this truce, and they decided not to shoot. And Christmas came, and not only did they have this truce, but in several places along the line, the soldiers actually came up onto no man's land, like the place where everyone comes to die, and they met each other, in the middle, in the middle of this war, they took a day off, <laughs> and they shared drinks together, and they had food. There are stories of them playing soccer or football together, and the soldiers in some places got to the point where they started chanting to end the war. They're like, this is, let's stop. What's funny about this story is two things. One, people back home didn't believe in the story because they had gotten so much propaganda about how evil the other army was, how evil the French were or the Germans were, that they could not believe that their boys would hang out and fraternize with the enemy. And when the top brass on both sides heard that this was happening, they created these strict rules. Never again can you fraternize with the enemy like this. You know, we're fighting a war here. Get your act together. Now, I'm not saying they were all Christians or anything like that, but over national and military interests... They had this deeper connection, which is that they both celebrated the birth of Christ. And that transcended all the other stuff. Even the fact that the day before, they were literally shooting at each other. So what Peter does when he reads, when he stands up and he begins to speak, is he's saying, notice this in 17, in the last days, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream, male servants, female servants. 
everybody. We have so many reasons to dig in the trenches and fire bullets at each other, and the enemy's the worst, right? And what Peter says is there is this one language that unites us where we can meet in no man's land together, right? We can put our guns down. And that language is the worship of Christ. Our mission as believers is to invite people into that fellowship, but it's also to have that fellowship together. There are Christians on all sides of the political spectrum and all sides of the world and all these things. There's so many reasons for Christians to be against one another on the national level and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But I don't know about you, have you ever had a situation in which you were in a tough spot and you realized the other person was a believer? Like someone who was trying to help you out, your car breaks down, something like that, and someone comes along and you realize that they love the same God you love, and suddenly you're just, ah, right? You realize you speak the same language, and you can jump past all that stuff, you're like, oh, you're a Christian too? Oh, sweet, you know? Many of us have had this experience, that no man's land experience. I think, honestly, the place where it happens the most is in confession of sin. If you've ever confessed your sin totally vulnerably, vulnerable and open to another believer and had them respond with mercy and grace and then them share that too, I think that moment of fellowship, that is empowered by the Spirit. It has to be. What benefit is there for people to confess their sins to one another, Right? We're supposed to hide that. We're supposed to be powerful and all this. But the Spirit is the thing that leads us into those conversations with each other. So what's, what's the application? So the application is a lot, but I'll give you just a couple of things. One, the same Spirit that was in Christ, that led Christ, is in you. The same Spirit that led Christ, was in Christ, is in you. And that Spirit deeply longs to draw you closer to God. And when we participate, when we make action for that, the Spirit is there to help and guide us. Some people hear that and maybe think that's all internal, so I do it all by myself. In my experience, as I just said about the confession, I feel like the Spirit works the most in community and fellowship, right? People who've struggled with addictions for a long time know that there are only so many times you can go back and say, I'm just going to do this myself. It just does not work. You need community, you need fellowship, and I feel like the Spirit works in that way. So the big application one is you have that Spirit inside of you, and we should spend a week just thinking about the rest of our lives, thinking about the ramifications, the implications of that. The other thing is if there there are believers who love God, they share that same Spirit with you, and that Spirit longs with peace between each other, that Spirit longs to push you towards Christ, that Spirit longs for forgiveness, for getting over difficult things that have come between you, That's what that spirit pushes us towards. If we share that same spirit, incredible. The last thing I would say is, because it's not about us, we can move forward with incredible hope. Because the kingdom of God ultimately comes. It ultimately wins. I feel like when I speak to Christians now, we're very defensive. We want, like, Christians kind of want to build the fortress. What we have here is an image of what the spirit is capable of. Spirit empowers us. There is no time like this time. There are so many confused people in the world deeply looking for some kind of anchor. When I speak to younger people, it's amazing how much has been stripped away. Like, what is something you can know is true? My students have no answer for that, a lot of them. What do you know is true? Literally everything has been broken down. Family systems have been broken down. Who you are just 
in, in any way has been broken down. It's all optional. And I feel like they are deeply lost in a lot of ways. And what do they need? What they need is the gospel. And so if I right now say, ah, I need to build the fortress and the defenses, and I'm not looking for the way the Spirit is moving in those students, if, if the Spirit is moving in someone and they're dissatisfied with that current moment, awesome. I want them to be dissatisfied with this current moment, right? I want them to feel the angst, because that might be the Spirit. It's like, yes, this is not how it's designed to be. We're designed to be in union with God. That anger, that frustration, that lostness you feel, you absolutely should feel that way. And I, in fact, I would say maybe that's the Spirit tugging you towards something good and true. The Spirit is working all around us. The world needs a church that believes and depends on the Spirit and can move forward in that confidence. So now's not the time to draw back. These are the days of the Lord. We have the Spirit. Let's move forward and let's witness to the world that there is a truth, there's a true God who loves us and invite them to speak that same language. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness for us. Thank you for this true language. I can think of so many conversations I've had with people across cultural barriers, across linguistic barriers, where the bedrock we stand on is that we both love you and we both speak that language. What an amazing thing. Father, may we be encouraged that this work that we're about as a church, this missional work, is not our work, but it's yours. It's not by our power that it'll go forward, but by the Spirit's power. That we don't have to be perfect because the Spirit is the one leading us. Father, a lot of us are, myself included, really timid, and we forget that the gospel is true, the gospel is powerful, that the Spirit is with us. Remind us, remind us that you dwell in us, that the end is secure, that we will spend all eternity with you, and that one hour in your presence will make up for a lifetime of suffering. Father, thank you for everyone in this room. Everyone has been placed in certain contexts that only they can reach, that only they can know. Press on our hearts this week, Father, how we can, through your spirit, testify to the kingdom of God, how we can invite others to speak the one true language. In Jesus' name, amen.